Hello, everyone. Some fool once said to me, Bobby, if you like writing, why don't you have a crack at fiction? Well, I did. I liked this story and I I really wanted someone who was close to me to read it. Who better than the daughter of my old mate, George Grudicic? So here it is, The Gardener, read by Jane Grudicic. They'd put a lot of thought into choosing a name. They wanted a leader's name. Finally, they decided if it were a boy, they would name him Alexander, a girl, Elizabeth. Before the baby was due, they set up an education fund. They were both university graduates and believed a solid education and academic achievement had been key building blocks in their success. They were determined their child would never have to worry about things like books and fees and living expenses, any of the other financial pressures that may be a distraction to a university student. Conception had been difficult and several miscarriages almost broke their resolve. But unexpectedly, there was another pregnancy, achieved without drugs or consulting a calendar. It just happened, and they both felt optimistic. They had a feeling the pregnancy achieved during two weeks of relaxation at their beach house over Christmas would go the full term. With the blessing of the board of her company, Carla took maternity leave. Jonathan insisted on hiring a maid to assist her at home and arranged for a prenatal nurse to visit three times a week. Jonathan was scheduled to be a speaker at an oil and gas conference in Houston during the 23rd week of Carla's pregnancy, but he informed the organisers he would be sending his deputy instead. He tried not to seem anxious, but with each passing week, he could scarcely think of anything other than the baby. He and Carla were building a wonderful life. They were high achievers. Both had sought and grasped the glittering prizes of the corporate world and were leaders in their respective fields. They were deeply in love, and each admired the other's achievements. More than once, it was said, they were perfectly matched. Good-looking, wealthy, well-connected and ambitious. A power couple. A child would complete a perfect union. Throughout her pregnancy, Carla remained active and healthy. She had a workstation set up in her study, and was able to participate in important teleconferences. She rested a lot. A personal trainer specialising in exercise during pregnancy visited regularly, and a dietitian provided an appropriate food intake plan. In the early hours of the morning of September 14th, Carla knew the baby was coming. When she and Jonathan arrived at the hospital, Carla was taken straight to the maternity ward. 30 minutes later, her obstetrician, beaming and confident, arrived. Five hours later... Carla was dead. Jonathan knew there was a serious problem when people came running down the corridors to the labour ward. He had been waiting to be by Carla's side when the baby arrived. Instead, he was shuffled away to be left alone with the fear and dread. As soon as he saw the look on the face of the obstetrician, he knew. Carla, his Carla, his wonderful, beautiful Carla, the love of his life, was gone. He was not interested in why she had died. Talk of blood clots and hemorrhages and obstructed births and peripartum something or other meant nothing to him. What mattered was Carla. His Carla was dead and his heart and his life were broken. He chose not to see her. He wanted his last memory of her to be of a living Carla, 
the Carla he kissed and who squeezed his hand and smiled as she was wheeled into the labour ward. Jonathan insisted on a private funeral. He abhorred public displays of grief. He would grieve in his own way. He would grieve alone and for a long time. Family and friends respected his wish to stay away. They said his behaviour reflected how much he loved Carla, how her death had shattered him. Not once in the weeks immediately after Carla's death and burial did Jonathan ask about the baby. It was only when the obstetrician contacted him that he said curtly that he would make arrangements. When it was time for his baby son to come home, Jonathan hired a live-in nanny, a prematurely grey woman with brown eyes, fair skin, well-rounded figure, oval face and warm smile. The nanny came with excellent references and a background in paediatric nursing. She was 38 years old, divorced, with no family of her own and prepared to live in. Jonathan liked her quiet, serious demeanour and gentle way of speaking. Before hiring the favourite applicant, he arranged for an extensive background check, the results of which reinforced his view that she was exactly the type of person he needed to care for his son. The nanny moved into the big house to a comfortable, nicely furnished room close to the nursery. As the child grew, the nanny tried to interest Jonathan in the progress of the little boy, his son's first steps, his determination and strength, his excitement when he saw animals on TV and the way Alexander enjoyed playing in the garden. But Jonathan was immersed in his work. Only constant work and the exhaustion that came with it could induce sleep, and with sleep came respite from thoughts of Carla. As Alexander developed physically, the nanny remarked to Jonathan that his son was growing wonderfully well, describing him as a strong little mite interested in toy machines. On such occasions, Jonathan listened impassively, then thanked her for the way in which the child was progressing under her care. Then he would busy himself with other things. The nanny never saw Jonathan touch Alexander or watch his son play. Neither did he celebrate Christmas with Alexander or acknowledge his birthdays. To Jonathan, September the 14th was a day that brought back memories of the worst day of his life. Each year, on that day, the nanny would take Alexander to a small cafe where she had arranged for a birthday cake. She and Alexander would sit at a table in the corner. When the cake was brought out, she would light candles and the nanny and the big grey-haired Greek man who owned the cafe would sing happy birthday and the little boy would smile and blow out the candles. The nanny would give Alexander a simple present, kiss his cheek and say, Happy birthday, my little man. Alexander would kiss the nanny's cheek and in his soft way of speaking would say, Sanku, after which the Greek cafe owner would give him a dish with two scoops of ice cream. Before he picked up a spoon to eat the ice cream, Alexander would pause then, in his careful, gentle way of speaking, would say, Sanku, to the cafe owner, and the nanny would smile proudly and say, Good boy. Inevitably, the nanny and the little boy became close. He had a room of his own, but he would often creep through the nighttime darkness of the big house to the nanny's room and curl up next to her. The nanny would draw him close, kiss his cheek, and softly sing the lullaby her mother sang to her. When he was old enough, the nanny took Alexander to preschooling classes and would linger and watch him play. On one such day, 
a young teacher asked the nanny if, when caring for Alexander, she'd noticed any cognitive issues, you know, learning or comprehension difficulties. The nanny replied that Alexander was a quiet little boy who liked to play in the garden. At the park, he would play for hours in the children's sandbox with his toy bucket and spade, usually away from other children. The young teacher gave the nanny the business card of a psychologist. She said specialised in treating children who had difficulty interacting with other kids and who in some developmental areas were a little behind children of the same age. The conversation with the teacher upset the nanny. It was her duty to report the conversation to Jonathan. When speaking to her employer directly, she had always addressed him as Mr Jonathan. He listened, then in a voice barely above a whisper, said, Are you telling me the child is retarded? The nanny hated it when Jonathan referred to his son as the child and was shocked at the flinty edge in his voice and his use of the word retarded. As firmly as she could, without sounding disrespectful, she said, No, he is not retarded. In some things, Alexander is a little behind children his own age, but he is clever in other ways. He loves being outdoors. He likes tinkering with toy machines. He is very much a thinker and a loner. The nanny paused, fearing that what she intended to say next may make Jonathan angry, but said, I know you are very busy, Mr Jonathan, but Alexander really does need an adult male in his life. Perhaps if you could find a little time. During their conversation, Jonathan was sitting behind the large antique desk in his study. When the nanny finished speaking, he was silent for a few minutes, writing notes on a sheet of paper, before saying, I'll be working in the United States for the next three months. If an urgent matter arises, you can reach me through Mrs Wilkins. She's my local office admin manager. I've written her contact details and instructions regarding a few minor matters I need you to attend to. Jonathan handed the nanny the notes and said, I'll leave it up to you to make daily decisions about the care and welfare of the child. On my instructions, Mrs Wilkins has enrolled him at a highly recommended school for backward children. Thank you for your dedication. I'm entrusting the boy to your care. Your salary will be increased accordingly. Later that night, the nanny read what Jonathan had written. There was more about the maintenance of the house and gardens than about his son. Jonathan's note said he was unhappy with the way the gardens were being maintained. Mrs Wilkins would engage a new gardener. Jonathan also wanted the exterior of the big house painted and the doors of the garage replaced. Three days before Alexander's fourth birthday, Jonathan left for America. Sixteen years would pass before he returned. Massimo had a daily routine. He rose at 5am, hand-watered the tomato plants and fed the four ageing hens kept in a large enclosure in the corner of the backyard. The chickens produced only four or five eggs a week, but that was as many as Massimo needed. He knew it would be simpler to buy eggs, but his parents had always kept chickens and grown tomatoes to make sauce. Keeping a few chickens and growing tomatoes maintained a link to his childhood and evoked memories of his parents. Many years before, on the day his father built the chicken enclosure, the family patriarch planted the lemon tree in the centre of the yard to produce fruit for cooking and homemade limoncello. The lemon tree and tomato plants thrived under Massimo's care. To Massimo, the chickens, the lemon tree, the tomatoes he grew each year 
and the sauce he made from his mother's family recipe were reminders of the loving environment in which he was raised and of the parents he admired and adored. Massimo had long ago decided he would live the rest of his life in the big house, surrounded by memories of his parents. There would always be chickens, tomatoes, a lemon tree and limoncello. Massimo lived alone in the house, the house where his parents, children of immigrants from a village in Abruzzo, had lived and loved. The house Massimo's father, a construction worker, planned and helped build. The house his parents had hoped would be home to a large family. The house that for years was warmed by the chatter and laughter of his parents and their friends. Returning home from the funeral of a distant relative, Massimo's parents died together. Instantly, 300 metres from home, in light traffic, mid-afternoon, at an intersection his father knew well and had negotiated hundreds of times. No blame was attached to the truck driver. Two days before his 20th birthday, Massimo's parents were buried side by side. When the mourners were gone, Massimo, their only child, knelt by the graveside, wept and thanked his parents for the life they had given him. That night, sitting alone in a house full of the essence of his parents, his mind a mosaic of memories, Massimo cried for hours. When he could cry no more, Massimo went to the large pantry adjoining the big kitchen and found the flagon of grappa, the flagon his father would bring out when friends visited, and days when his father and other men had arranged for a pig to be killed and delivered. On those days, the men would make sausages and brawn the old way, the way it had been done for centuries in the villages that were home to their ancestors. When the work was done, there would be a table set with crusty bread, sausage, cheese, salami, mortadella, prosciutto, brawn, pickled vegetables and olives. Some men would drink beer, others would drink the wine and grappa they had made themselves, the way it had always been made in the places from whence they came. There would be laughter and stories, People would chatter in English and Italian dialects. Later, games of bocce were played on the lawn at the back of the house. Remembering the joy of sharing those times with his parents, Massimo became overwhelmed with grief. He banged the big oak table with his fist and let out a hoarse cry, a cry of pain, the all-consuming pain of heartbreak. In the weeks following his parents' funeral, Massimo rarely left the big house. He grieved alone. A month after the accident, on a cold autumn morning, Massimo rose before dawn. He fed the chickens, brewed coffee, prepared and packed his lunch and kissed the photograph of his parents. He needed to work. It was what his parents would expect him to do. His parents had planned for Massimo to be a lawyer, perhaps a doctor or some other profession of high status. Those hopes were abandoned when weeks after his 16th birthday, Massimo had taken a job with the Parks and Gardens Department of the local council. Massimo spent seven years working in a job he loved, until the day he was advised by the Parks and Gardens manager that he was redundant. The manager said Massimo was one of ten people whose jobs had been outsourced. The following week, Massimo placed a small advertisement in the local newspaper. The advertisement read, Experienced, trustworthy gardener available. Massimo's home telephone number was featured in bold black type. Massimo the gardener built a thriving one-man business. The nanny was watching Alexander play in his sandbox 
when the smiling, solidly built, suntanned man with the friendly brown face, sparkling brown eyes and glistening black curly hair called out from the street, Lady, hello lady. When Massimo caught the nanny's attention, he continued to smile broadly and said, Hello, I'm Massimo, your new gardener. The man was wearing dark blue football shorts, a dark blue singlet and sturdy work boots. The nanny could see an older model ute parked in the street next to the security fence at the rear of the house. The nanny knew Mrs Wilkins had arranged for a new gardener, but ever cautious, she said, wait a moment please. The nanny rang Mrs Wilkins' direct line. Yes, she had arranged for a new gardener, and yes, his name was Massimo. The nanny unlocked a side gate. Smiling broadly, the new gardener extended a calloused hand and said, Hello, I'm Massimo. The nanny, never comfortable with strangers, briefly touched Massimo's hand and said firmly, I'm the nanny. I look after the little boy. All the tools and mowers are in the shed. Mr Jonathan wants a tidy garden. He prefers native shrubs interspersed with a nice show of seasonal flowers to add some colour and a green healthy lawn. As you can see, there is an acre of grounds and gardens that need to be maintained. The nanny was expecting the new gardener to have an accent, but he spoke in a distinctly Australian voice. Still smiling, he said, No worries, leave it to me. In a few weeks, it will be picture book perfect. As the gardener went about his work, the little boy continued to play in the sandbox with his bucket and spade, occasionally looking toward the sturdy suntanned man working in the expansive gardens. On his fourth visit, Massimo was on his knees planting some zinnias in a garden bed that had long been neglected. He had carefully prepared the soil. It was now weed-free and healthy. He smiled as he worked. Like all gardeners, he loved the smell of damp, freshly turned earth. For a moment, he did not notice Alexander kneeling beside him, watching in silence. Massimo smiled at Alexander and placed some plants in front of him. Without a word, Alexander began to plant the zinnias. He did so with great care. The gardener and the little boy worked side by side in silence. Massimo was surprised at the way Alexander kept the rows of plants in line and carefully pressed and patted the earth around each stem. When the bed was fully planted, Massimo looked at the little boy, smiled and said, Well done, Alexander. Good job. He held up his calloused brown hand, inviting the little boy to give him a high five. For a moment, Alexander frowned, unsure. Then he tentatively reached out and touched the palm of the gardener's hand. It was the first time Massimo saw Alexander smile. Laughing, Massimo lifted his new workmate onto his shoulders and said, Come on, partner, let's see if Nanny will give two hard-working gardeners a cup of coffee. Mrs Wilkins said Jonathan's instructions were clear. The boy was of an age where he needed professional help to assist with his development. The Nanny was told that an account had been established with a taxi company and each school day the Nanny was to take Alexander to the special school for boys like him. Mrs Wilkins said her employer was acting on the very best advice. As instructed, each school day the nanny would take Alexander to the special school. Massimo missed Alexander. He missed him so much that he changed his visits from weekdays to weekends. Together they tended flower beds, lawns, shrubs and worked side by side, tending their small, newly planted vegetable garden. 
In winter, broccoli, cabbages, silverbeet, garlic and cauliflowers flourished. In summer, when the tomatoes were rich, red and lush, Massimo would show Alexander and the nanny how to cook and bottle Italian tomato sauce made to his mother's recipe. At Christmas, Mrs Wilkins ordered things for the boy. A bicycle, footballs, basketballs, a trampoline. Things of no interest to Alexander. Close to Christmas Day, Mrs Wilkins would send a courier with a big basket of cheeses, pâté and quince paste. Each Christmas Eve, a man would come with a huge ham and another man would bring a white box filled with ice. Buried in the ice would be a cooked lobster. A busy, complaining, red-faced, chubby woman would bring a cake with a card attached. The nanny would look at the unsigned card and say, This lovely cake is another present from your father. He is thinking of you. He is working very hard in America. Later, Mrs Wilkins would ring to ensure everything had arrived. Sometimes she would ask how the boy was coming along. On Christmas days, Massimo would visit. He wore a suit, a white shirt and tie, and shiny black shoes. He, the nanny, and Alexander would sit on the back porch of the big house and have lunch together. They would wear party hats and eat ham and lobster with salad made with lettuce, tomatoes, and spring onions from the garden. Massimo would bring a bottle of Prosecco and a panettone loaf. During lunch, Massimo and the nanny would each raise a glass of Prosecco and clink their glasses together. Alexander would watch as their eyes filled with tears. He would raise his glass of lemonade and the three would clink their glasses. The little boy would smile and the nanny would hug Alexander and whisper, My dear little man. Late in the afternoon, Massimo would go to the cemetery and sit beside the graves of his parents and talk to them of Christmas's past. Alexander grew into a tall, lanky teenage boy. He and Massimo were an ideal combination. The gardener with his knowledge and warm, gregarious Italian charm and Alexander, a polite, quietly spoken young man who loved gardening. They built an extensive clientele. Each year, when September 14th came around, Massimo would kiss Alexander's cheeks and say, Happy birthday, partner. The year Alexander reached 16 years of age, the nanny decided to tell him as much as she knew about his mother. When he had questioned her about his parents, she had always said his mother had gone to heaven and his father was working in America. Nanny believed it was time to reveal more. The nanny contacted major cemeteries in the city and was able to acquire details of the location of Carla's grave. On Mother's Day in Alexander's 16th year, the nanny, Massimo and Alexander picked flowers from the garden At the cemetery, they walked slowly through the rows of headstones to Carla's grave. Alexander remained silent as the nanny gently explained that this was the plot of earth where his mother, the woman who carried him inside her body for nine months and who died bringing him into the world, was laid to rest. Alexander touched the tombstone and ran his fingers over the names that were cut into the marble. He touched the letters of his mother's name his father's name, and his own. There was only one picture of Carla in the big house, a photographic portrait that Jonathan kept on the desk in his study. The nanny had been instructed to never enter Jonathan's study during his absence. That day she had disobeyed that instruction. She took the photograph from her bag, 
showed it to Alexander and said gently, this is your beautiful mother. Alexander studied the photograph for several minutes before speaking. Softly, slowly, choosing each word carefully, he said, I wish I could see her, nanny, and touch her. The nanny put her arm around Alexander's shoulder and said, I wish that too, darling. I'm sure she would be proud of her son. Massimo knelt by Carla's grave and began removing weeds and clearing grass from around the headstone. The nanny handed Alexander the flowers and wept softly as he laid them by his mother's headstone and knelt beside Massimo. Together, they silently tended Carla's grave. At the end of each month, working side by side, Alexander and Massimo would weed and tidy Carla's grave and the graves of Massimo's parents. Massimo was a realist. He knew that in life there were inevitabilities. He knew that Alexander had reached puberty. He knew the boy would feel sexual urges. He and Alexander now worked Massimo's gardening business as partners. He had seen Alexander looking at young women. Because Alexander was shy, had lived a sheltered life and spoke softly and slowly, Massimo was concerned his young friend would have difficulties interacting with people, especially girls. Alexander did not have a peer group. He did not socialise. Since he began working with Massimo in their landscaping and gardening business, Alexander had developed a quiet confidence. But because he spoke slowly and chose not to engage in lengthy conversations or idle chat, Alexander was often misjudged. Although Alexander thought carefully before responding to questions, he had shown a capacity to learn. Massimo taught his protégé to service and repair the machines they used. He taught his young partner to drive, and he and the nanny spent hours improving Alexander's reading and writing skills. But there were things that could only be learned through experience. Massimo was convinced that as the only male role model Alexander had known, it would be up to him to explain certain things to the young man. He did so with a book, a book with images, a book produced specifically to show young people the processes of reproduction. Alexander could read, not large, rarely used, unfamiliar words, but allowed to take his time, he would read and understand most things in magazines and newspapers. As Massimo showed Alexander the pictures and read the text, he explained things as best he could. Alexander watched and listened. After an hour or so, Massimo closed the book and said, that's it, mate, that's sex. Of course, it's a lot more than that. Once you start, you'll know what I'm talking about. Alexander was frowning. When Massimo finished speaking, he took the book and simply said, OK, and began reading. After an hour, Alexander put the book down and sat on the porch of the big house. Still frowning, he opened the book again. The nanny whispered, My God, Massimo, I pray you haven't unleashed something bad. Several times in the following months, Massimo tried to encourage Alexander to meet people his age. He took his young friend to social events at the local football club, hoping he would make friends. Alexander was always polite, but despite Massimo's urgings, didn't connect with anyone and never asked Massimo for a return visit. Not until the day they took Nanny to a gardening show. That day, Alexander talked freely to stallholders, watched trade videos and examined machinery. Driving home, Alexander chatted about the highlights of his day and told Massimo he liked gardening shows and hoped they would attend others. 
Massimo thought about the age of the clientele at the gardening show and feared his young friend may never develop a relationship with someone his own age. One day, after working hard to remove a tree stump, they were enjoying a cup of coffee when in a quiet, serious voice, Massimo said, Mate, tell me, do you like girls? Alexander smiled and nodded. Massimo said, The books I showed you, the sex thing, do you think about it? Alexander laughed softly and said, Sometimes. Massimo said, Do you think you'll ever meet a girl and do that stuff? Alexander frowned and shrugged and said, I don't know, Massey. I don't meet girls who would do that with me. I was asked by Mrs Chambers if I wanted to do that, you know, the day I planted her front garden. Shocked, Massimo said loudly, Mrs Chambers chatted you up. Alexander smiled and said, I told her I didn't have time. I had to finish planting before you came back with the fertiliser. She laughed and gave me a hug. It felt good. Massimo was still shaking his head in disbelief when Alexander said quietly, One day I'll try the sex thing. I think about it, but in those pictures, the people look as though they don't like each other. Massimo patted the young man's arm and said, Now that I know you are interested, leave it to me. Massimo liked women. He had been involved in a number of relationships, but they petered out when Massimo showed no inclination to want to proceed to marriage or commit to something permanent. For some years, he kept in touch with a widow he met through his business. The widow enjoyed Massimo's humour, his polite cheekiness and the gentle way his calloused hands explored her body. Once or twice a month, they would dine together and he would stay the night, but the widow made it clear she was not after love or marriage or a permanent partner, just sex. She liked to say, If I feel the need to be loved, I'll get a dog. When the widow and a woman she met at aerobic classes were attracted to each other, she asked Massimo to stop contacting her. Massimo gave a lot of thought to Alexander's lack of female friends and the young man's reluctance to mix with people his own age. Eventually, he decided that Alexander was too shy and lacking in the social skills required to initiate contact with women. Massimo determined the young man needed a little help. He decided to engage a professional to provide Alexander with his first sexual experience. Not a streetwalker or a brothel worker, but a professional working discreetly in the suburbs. Someone who would look after the boy. He knew there were such women. As a young man, he had used their services a few times. Massimo knew where they advertised for clients. He knew how to decipher the codes in the tiny advertisements that appeared in personal columns in some suburban newspapers. He rang several of the advertised phone numbers, but did not like what he heard. It took him several days to find someone he believed would look after Alexander, someone who would not frighten him or make fun of him, someone who worked alone in a quiet suburb, someone young enough to be attractive to a young man from a sheltered background who was experiencing sex for the first time. To be certain, Massimo visited the house and spoke to the woman. He judged her age to be late 20s, maybe a little older. She seemed to understand his concern for Alexander, and he liked her dry sense of humour. She was very security conscious and negotiated with Massimo from behind the bars of a solid metal security door. An agreement was reached. On Monday morning of the following week, Massimo told his young partner there would be no work that day. On the way to the woman's house, Massimo told Alexander where they were going and why. Alexander was silent for several minutes 
then in a serious voice asked, Will I have to take my clothes off? Massimo was not sure if his young friend was teasing him. When he realised Alexander was serious, he smiled, patted the young man's shoulder and said, It's more comfortable if you do, but that's your choice. When she was working, Mandy called herself Natasha. She had three bookings that day, two regulars and a new kid having his first. The kid would be her easiest. The young ones were always full of testosterone and short on control. The guy who made the booking said the kid was shy. Mandy had said, don't worry, they lose their shyness when they see a pair of boobs and a bare ass." It was mid-morning when Massimo and Alexander arrived in the quiet suburban street. They parked their work vehicle a hundred yards or so away from the plain red brick house with the fading green-tiled roof. Massimo pressed the intercom buzzer and a woman's voice said, Yes? Is that Natasha? Yes, do you have a booking? Yes, my name is Massimo. I spoke to you. I'm here with my young friend. The woman replied, I don't allow two men in at once. Make sure the boy has the money and I'll buzz him through. You'll have to wait in your vehicle. Massimo answered, Okay, I understand. My friend has the money. Please, he's special to me. Look after him. Mandy replied impatiently, Mister, I promise not to hurt him. Now piss off and I'll let him in. Massimo was suddenly overcome with uncertainty. Was this the right thing to do? What if the encounter went badly? But it was too late to cancel the booking. Alexander was already inside the tired-looking red brick house. For a minute or two, Mandy stood arms folded, studying the fair-haired, good-looking young man standing in the short passageway between the veneer walls that led to the room where she conducted business. He was tanned, fit and healthy, dressed in a clean, freshly laundered check work shirt, denim jeans and work boots. She asked him to remove his boots. Alexander did as he was asked, then stood a few feet away from Mandy, smiling, saying nothing. Mandy asked him for money. Without a word, Alexander handed her the money Massimo had given him. Mandy said, wait, and disappeared into another room, the room where she hid the money, the room with the security system keypad on the wall behind the door. When she returned, she was wearing only a short pink negligee and a pair of stilettos. The stilettos accentuated her long legs. She had tied her hair back with a pink ribbon. Alexander had not spoken a word. He watched Mandy in silence. A client who said he was a fashion photographer once told Mandy that her face was too long and her nose a little too bent for her to be described as pretty. The photographer said the scar on her cheek and the other above her right eye spoiled her looks. But the photographer said she had the right body for her business. He said her body and the way she looked at men screamed sex appeal. At the time, Mandy thought he was probably not a fashion photographer at all, just a bullshit artist. But he was right about her having sex appeal. Growing up, Mandy lived with her family in a tidy, middle-class suburb close to the shopping centre where her father operated a news agency. Her sex appeal attracted boys, especially bad boys. At age 15, Mandy became pregnant to a handsome, tattooed 24-year-old tough guy she met at a heavy metal concert. Her father was horrified when he learned Mandy and her boyfriend had secretly arranged an abortion. The tough guy was charged with having sex with a minor. He was also charged with stealing a car and being in possession of a small but trafficable amount of meth. 
Three years later, while on parole, the tough guy followed Mandy to the supermarket where she worked. He waited for her in a stolen car and they drove to another city. The tough guy told Mandy he loved her and would look after her, but his drug habit consumed him. The meth was destroying his mind, his body, his conscience and his morality. Needing money to feed his drug habit, he brought men to their motel room to pay for sex with Mandy. Mandy knew she was on a pathway to degradation. She was being used. She rebelled and tried to leave. The tough guy tried to stop her. At first he begged her not to go. Mandy ignored him and tried to leave. The tough guy dragged her from the door. They fought. Mandy punched the tough guy and smashed an empty beer bottle against the side of his head. Enraged, the man who said he loved Mandy and would protect her punched and kicked her. Screaming in rage, his mind warped by his addiction, he threw Mandy across the room shouting, I fucking own you. Mandy fought back. The tough guy slapped her to the floor. Mandy grasped the broken beer bottle. She stood and told the tough guy to get out of her way. The tough guy grabbed her by the hair. Mandy drove the broken beer bottle into the tough guy's throat. As he lay on the floor bleeding to death, Mandy wiped blood from her nose and mouth and waited before calling an ambulance and the police. Mandy served two and a half years of a four-year sentence for manslaughter. Her lawyer said because the tough guy was a meth addict known to police as a violent criminal, Mandy would have walked free if she had called the ambulance sooner. Mandy told the lawyer she wanted to be sure the tough guy was dead before she called for help. Out of prison and in control of her life, she travelled to another city, to a quiet suburb and a plain, tired-looking red brick house with a faded green-tiled roof. She was working as a prostitute, but working for herself and on her terms. Mandy led the tall, quiet, good-looking young man into the room with the white veneer walls. There were framed etchings of men and women entwined in various sexual positions on one wall and a large mirror on another. A king-sized double bed and bedside cabinet were opposite the mirror. The bed had a dark blue cover and blue pillows. Heavy beige curtains covered the windows. Despite being recently sprayed with air freshener, the room smelled faintly of disinfectant. A small stainless steel dish sat atop the bedside cabinet. The second drawer of the cabinet was full of clean hand towels and another drawer contained condoms and tubes of lubricant. As they entered the bedroom, Mandy reached into the top drawer and activated the device with the alarm button. The alarm was connected to a security company. Mandy took the stainless steel dish and fetched some warm water from the bathroom. Alexander stood at the end of the bed and watched as the prostitute prepared things. When she bent over to take a hand towel from the bedside cabinet, he could see her bare buttocks and genitals. He smiled. It was the first time he had seen a naked woman in real life. Mandy looked at Alexander and said, I need to wash your equipment and check for nasties. I told your friend I won't do business unless you wear a condom, OK? Alexander nodded. Mandy moved close, reached for Alexander's belt buckle and whispered, OK, cowboy, time for your first rodeo. She then began to massage Alexander's crotch with one hand and undo his belt buckle with the other. Alexander gently took hold of Mandy's wrists then very slowly and quietly said, please, you don't have to do that. I know about the sex stuff. The big boys at my school talked about sex stuff all the time. Sometimes the big boys showed us books of people doing things. 
One big boy named Simon tried to do things to the little kids, but we ran away. Still speaking in a soft, slow voice, he repeated, I know about the sex stuff. Nonplussed, Mandy took a step backwards. Was the kid conning her? Was this an act? Mandy sat on the bed and looked at Alexander. He was for real. This was no act. She said quietly, Well, cowboy, I don't give refunds, so are we going to play? Smiling, Alexander shook his head and said, No, but you're really pretty. Can I come and see you again? Mandy touched his hand and said, Of course you can, but you have to pay, baby. Time is money in my business. Then she stood up and said, OK? They reached the door. Alexander slipped into his boots and said, Your garden is really sick. Mandy wondered again if he was joking, clumsily trying to make fun of her. But she knew about men and there was innocence in those blue eyes. She unlocked the door and looked at the dry lawn and yellowing shrubs, smiled and said, Well, baby, to tell you the truth, I'm not much of a gardener. Alexander paused before speaking, then said, Massey is the best gardener in the world. We can fix your garden. Frowning, he said, Your grevilleas are yellow. Massey showed me how to make grevilleas green again. Massey said when they turn yellow, they need some iron. Mandy was smiling when she said, I'm fascinated by this gardening chat we're having, but in ten minutes a randy businessman will be here. As she was speaking, Mandy gently guided Alexander toward the door. An anxious Massimo was waiting in the ute. Alexander sat in the passenger's seat, smiled and said, She's a really pretty lady. Massimo looked at him in anticipation and said, And? Alexander said, Can I see her again, Massey? Massimo laughed out loud and banged the steering wheel. Then he patted Alexander's thigh and in a loud, happy voice said, Of course you can, partner. He laughed even louder and in Italian said loudly, Il mio ragazzo grande e forte. A few days later at seven in the morning, Mandy was woken by the noise of a machine. She parted the curtains and was able to recognise Alexander and Massimo. Alexander was behind a machine dethatching the dry front lawn. Massimo was spraying the grevilleas. Mandy watched as Alexander stopped the machine and spread a bag of fertiliser over the dry grass. Then he attached a new hose to the water tap at the side of the house. Mandy, wrapped in a dressing gown, opened the front door and in feigned anger said, What the hell is this? Massimo shrugged and said, Not my idea. Ask him. Whatever you did to him has turned him into your personal gardener. Alexander turned the tap and watched the sprinkler fling water across the garden. Satisfied, he walked to the doorway, smiled, looked at Mandy for a minute or two, before in his quiet way of speaking said, My name is Alexander. I'll look after your garden. Turn the sprinkler off in half an hour. Then he and Massimo loaded their gear into the old ute and waved as they drove away. After four or five visits, Mandy became used to the ways of the young gardener. She had not made friends since she moved to this city, but then she was not there to make friends. She was there to make money. Enough money to be independent, to build a better life. But she liked Alexander. She liked his naive charm. She liked his simple questions, and she liked the respectful way he spoke to her. Alexander never mentioned sex during his visits. They talked about Massimo and a woman the young man called Nanny. He told Mandy about his father, who lived in America, and he said that his mother, who was very beautiful, had died when he was a baby. And he talked about gardening. 
After a while, Mandy realised that other than the nanny, she was the only woman with whom Alexander had socialised. She smiled at the thought and said, Amanda Collins, hooker and part-time girlfriend. When they sat together, she enjoyed their mundane conversations. It had been a long time since Mandy had spoken to a man to whom she was a person and not just something men wanted to get their hands on and their penis into. Mandy knew men. She knew about lies and lust and carnal appetites. To satisfy those appetites, they used her, and she used them. She made them pay. But in the eyes and the ways of the young gardener, she saw only kindness and innocence. Mandy was amused to think the older man thought his protégé was in the house having sex. She had become used to Alexander's way of speaking, of his careful way of offering an opinion. She had learned to be patient when they talked. Sometimes he needed a little time to search his mind for the right words to construct a sentence. But he was clever. Her garden was blooming. Alexander never asked about her work and he always paid for the visits. She decided that one day she would give the money back, probably through his friend. Mandy never talked to the older man about the time she and Alexander spent together and wondered if Alexander had told Massimo they had not had sex. If he had not, it was a secret she and the younger man shared, and she smiled when she thought about it. It prompted her to share another secret with her young friend. She told him her name was not Natasha, that her name was Amanda, but she liked to be called Mandy, and that it was their secret. When she told Alexander, he smiled and said, Our secret. Later that year, shortly before Christmas, Mrs Wilkins rang the nanny to tell her that Jonathan intended to sell the house. She said that when the house was sold, the nanny would no longer be required and would be paid a severance bonus of two years' salary in recognition of her long service and dedication to the boys' welfare. The nanny was shocked. Her life revolved around Alexander. He and Massimo were her only friends. She feared this day might come and thought she had prepared herself for it. But the nanny was trembling when she said, What about Alexander? He's not a boy anymore. He is happy. He works at something he loves. He does not know his father. I wrote letters to Mr Jonathan but never heard back. She paused and took a long breath to regain her composure before saying, I'm not sure how Alexander will cope. Mrs Wilkins said that Jonathan had arranged for the boy to be assessed by experts in the field of mental health. If it was decided the boy was able to travel, Jonathan wanted Alexander to join him in America. Mrs Wilkins said her employer had found a facility where the boy would receive the best of care and his father could better supervise things. The nanny dropped the phone and began to cry. The nanny was a woman with strong values. She was not a church-going woman, but she prayed every night and took pride in not being a judgmental person. For more than 20 years, Alexander had been the most important part of her life. She loved him as her own. She had feared what would become of him when her life ended, or if he were taken to America by his father. But now he was blooming. Working with Massimo had given Alexander skills and confidence, and he was no longer uncomfortable in the company of strangers. Almost from the beginning of their marriage, Nanny knew her husband had been attracted to other women. She knew about his affairs, just as she knew he would leave her one day. Her love for him evaporated completely when while she was on night duty at the hospital, 
he took another woman to their bed. After she confronted him with the makeup on the pillow slip, the lipstick on the wine glass and the earring, he shrugged, laughed and said, OK, you got me. What now? The next day, she left the house and never returned. She continued her nursing career and hoped one day to find another man, a better man, a man with whom she could have children. But the right man never came along. So she sought to satisfy her maternal instincts, caring for the children of other people. Then came the interview with Mrs Wilkins and another with Mr Jonathan, and Alexander became the most important person in her life. She was proud of the way he had grown to manhood, the respect he had for people, and the way he returned the love she had for him. She took satisfaction from the role she had played in shaping Alexander's life and personality. And she knew they both owed much to Massimo, the gregarious, positive, soft-hearted, constantly happy man who had changed their lives. The man in the black suit was a new client. He was in his mid-forties, tall and gaunt with a large square jaw, a long nose and thin greying hair. He was wearing spectacles. From behind the security door, Mandy could see a late model black sedan parked outside her house. Through the bars of the door, she could see his soft white hands and clean fingernails and the wedding ring. Mandy picked him as an accountant, possibly a middle-ranking public servant. She guessed he got her number from the tiny ad she ran some weeks ago in the personal column of the local newspaper. Or maybe she had been recommended by one of the other married white-collar types who comprised most of her clientele. The new client smiled, a cold, humourless smile, and said, Hello, I'm Travis. I rang. Are you Natasha? Mandy replied firmly, Yes, before you come in, I'll need the money. The new client slipped the money through the bars of the security door. Mandy took it and told him to wait. She hid the money and checked the panic button in the top drawer of the bedside cabinet. Then she opened the security door and the new client followed her to the bedroom. Mandy told him to undress. The new client stripped down to his socks. He watched Mandy reach for the lubricant and the condoms. With a quaver in his voice, he said, I'll pay double for anal, no condom, and I like kissing. Mandy looked at the new client. He was standing legs apart, fists clenched, his penis flaccid. The change in his voice and the look in his eyes caused Mandy to sense danger. She needed to keep control. I told you when you rang, I don't do anal. All clients wear a condom and I only kiss my grandmother. So are we going to do business or not? Mandy stood with a hand on one hip, defiant, trying not to show fear. The new client, wide-eyed, grinning, answering in a hoarse whisper, sorry, I forgot the rules, he paused, staring at her body. Then, in a voice barely audible, said, you're much more beautiful than the others, and defiant, I like that. As he spoke, the new client drove his fist into Mandy's face. Mandy stayed conscious and screamed, the new client punched her again and she fell to the floor. He grabbed a handful of her hair and twisted her face upwards and tried to kiss her. Then he bit her face and punched her twice more. Mandy fell to her knees beside the bed, dazed and blinded by the blows to her face. The new client drove his knee into her chest, stood and dropped both of his knees into her abdomen. 
Mandy felt something break inside her body. She was gasping, choking on blood. The attacker picked up one of his highly polished shoes and used the heel to smash the big mirror. Then he wrapped his fist in Mandy's hair and dragged her from the floor onto the bed. Holding a large piece of the smashed mirror, he straddled her. He had lost his glasses. He was wide-eyed and excited, his penis now erect. He cut Mandy across the cheek with the piece of broken mirror. He cut her right breast, then her left breast. He was breathing heavily, grunting, making hoarse guttural sounds as he bit Mandy and slashed her face. He rolled her onto her stomach and began to rip a pillowcase into strips. Mandy could barely move her arm. She could not see. Her face and body were slashed and broken, her breathing shallow and sporadic. She was badly hurt and bloodied. Through a fog of semi-consciousness, she reached for the panic button in the top drawer of the bedside cabinet. Before she lapsed into unconsciousness, Mandy was beyond feeling pain. The operator in the central monitoring station at the security company noted the alarm at 12.47pm. He followed protocol and rang the number provided by the client. There was no answer. He tried again at 12.50pm and again at 1pm. The client file showed the service had been installed at that address for two years. The operator noted this was the first time the personal alarm had been activated. The client's details requested that after making two calls 10 minutes apart, if the number given did not answer, the security company should ask police to check the welfare of the resident at the address listed. At 1.10pm, police were alerted to a possible emergency. At 1.25pm, a two-person police unit arrived at the front of the tired-looking red brick house with a flourishing garden. A late-model black sedan was parked in the street in front of the house. The two officers banged on the front and back doors and called out at the barred windows. When there was no response, they radioed their sergeant. He told them there may be an elderly person in trouble in the house, possibly after having a fall. When backup arrived with the appropriate tools, they prized open the security door and entered the house. They found a naked woman lying unconscious on a bed in a pool of blood. Her hands and feet were tied. The woman had extensive facial wounds and deep lacerations over her face and body. They immediately called for an ambulance. A man, uninjured, covered in blood, naked except for a pair of blood-soaked socks, was cowering in a corner. The man was rocking back and forth, repeating again and again, I was defending myself, she tried to kill me. Police took the blood-spattered man into custody and declared the red brick house a major crime scene. At 7am the following morning, Alexander and Massimo arrived at the red brick house to plant some shrubs. Alexander was looking forward to having coffee with Mandy. He liked talking to her. She made him laugh and told him stories about her childhood. He had never told Massimo that he and Mandy had not had sex. He had never told his friend that when they were alone in the house, they drank coffee and talked about TV, gardening and things they liked to eat. When Christmas came, Alexander intended asking Massimo and Nanny if Mandy could visit for the day. As they turned into the street where Mandy lived and conducted her business, they saw police vehicles. Yellow tape was strung across the entrance to the red brick house. 
Frowning concern, Alexander looked at Massimo and said, What's happening, Massey? Massimo parked their ute and hurried to speak to the policeman guarding the front gate. The policeman took out his notebook and asked Massimo if he knew the occupant of the house. He then asked Massimo's name and address and asked to see his driver's licence. After hearing the few snippets he was able to glean from his conversation with the young policeman, Massimo feared how Alexander would react. The policeman had told Massimo that a female occupant of the house was hospitalised with life-threatening injuries. Walking back to their vehicle, Massimo wondered what he would tell Alexander. He knew a bond had developed between the prostitute and his young friend. Massimo was grim-faced when he returned to their vehicle. He looked at Alexander and said, ''Someone hurt her badly. She's in hospital.'' Then he placed a reassuring hand on Alexander's forearm and said, let's see if we can find her. As always, Alexander thought for a minute or two before answering. In a voice full of concern, he said, she might need our help, Massey. She doesn't have any friends. Her family lives in Sydney. Her mum and dad don't talk to her. She lives by herself. Her real name is Amanda, but she likes to be called Mandy. Massey put his arm around Alexander's shoulder and said, Don't worry, mate, we'll find her. Finding Mandy was not easy. Massimo contacted every major hospital to inquire if one of their patients, a young woman named Amanda, had been admitted after a brutal, life-threatening attack. He gave the date of admission. When asked if he was a family member, Massimo replied that he was a close friend. None of the hospitals were able to help. He left his name and number. The next day, a female detective contacted Massimo and asked about an appropriate time for her and a colleague to speak to him about a matter they were investigating. The two detectives interviewed Massimo at home. He told them he was the victim's gardener. He answered each question truthfully. Yes, he rang the hospital asking if she was a patient. No, he had never paid to have sex with her. No, he did not fraternise with her socially. No, she had never discussed details of her family with him. They showed him a picture of a man, first with the man wearing spectacles, then without the spectacles. No, he had never seen that man at the house. No, there was nothing else he could think of that might assist them with their inquiries. Yes, he would contact them if he thought of anything. As they were about to leave, Massimo asked if Mandy was alive. One of the detectives said a badly injured woman, believed to be the owner of the house, was in an ICU ward. She had suffered wounds to her face and body that required over 200 stitches, as well as multiple facial fractures, a ruptured spleen, broken ribs, a broken wrist and blood loss. She paused to refer to her notebook and then said, and other stuff. Massimo knew not to ask for further details, but there was one question he had to ask. He said, have you caught the bastard that did it? One of the detectives said blandly, our inquiries are continuing. Massimo said, we want to send her flowers. The detective said, send the flowers to City Hospital, but stay away. Her condition is critical and do not discuss this matter with anyone. When the nanny told Massimo the house was being sold, he said, that's good news. Now you and Alexander can come and live at my place. It's a big house, five bedrooms, two bathrooms on an acre of land. No problem. It's an old house but in good nick. 
I replaced the roof last year. My mum and dad always looked after it. They planned to have three or four kids, but it didn't happen. The three of us lived there, in a big house built for a large family. So no arguments. You and Alexander can live there. All good. No worries, okay? The nanny said her employer wanted to take his son to the United States. For a moment, Massimo looked shocked. Then he frowned and said, If the boy wants to go, then okay. If not, we fight. I've got plenty of money. No way my partner is going anywhere unless it's what he wants. The nanny told Massimo that her employer was a very rich man. Massimo patted the nanny's arm and said, We'll see. Then he told the nanny about the attack on Mandy and the visit from the police and how Mandy was cut and beaten and that she and Alexander had developed a bond. Massimo said, Alexander likes her. Maybe he doesn't fully understand what prostitutes do. Women like her are usually as hard as nails. They have to be. Alexander keeps telling me how nice she is. I don't want the poor kid to get his heart broken. The nanny saw the news report on television. A 45-year-old man had been arrested and faced a list of charges that included rape and attempted murder. The alleged victim was a 26-year-old woman. The report said she was in a serious but stable condition in the intensive care unit at City Hospital. Her alleged assailant was described as married with two children. The nanny told Massimo about the report. He was unsure what to do. Massimo knew that if he told Alexander the young man would want to see the woman, he now knew as Amanda or Mandy. Massimo loved his young friend. He did not want to see him hurt. He was uncertain whether it would be in Alexander's best interest to visit Mandy. Then he asked himself if, as a friend, he had the right to make such a decision. Massimo spoke to the nanny. She said, if Alexander is to form relationships, he needs to be exposed to the realities of human nature, with all its flaws. Besides, if what she has told Alexander is true, she has no one here to look after her. Next morning, Massimo took Alexander to a florist to buy two dozen long-stemmed roses. He and Massimo each selected a card. Alexander carefully printed the message the nanny had said would be appropriate and nice. The nanny had written the message down for Alexander to copy. He did so with great care. Let us know if you need anything, Alexander and Massimo. Then he printed their telephone number. Massimo read what Alexander had printed and mumbled something in Italian. Then he tore the card up and bought two more. Now listen, partner, you write something from your heart. He slapped his chest and said, something you feel here, okay? Alexander nodded, selected another card and with great care printed, we will look after your garden. I miss you, your friend Alexander. He carefully slipped the card into the envelope and placed it among the roses. On another card, Massimo wrote, Best wishes. We are here if you need us. Massimo, kiss, kiss. Massimo and Alexander drove to the hospital. They were told by a receptionist that Amanda Collins was too sick to see visitors. The receptionist said she would ensure Miss Collins received the roses. Several times a week, Massimo and Alexander left flowers and a card at the hospital. Massimo was surprised and concerned at the way Alexander spoke about the prostitute. Alexander always referred to her as Mandy. 
The young man said she had told him lovely stories about childhood Christmases with her dad, the things she did at school, that as a child she learned to play the piano. Alexander told Massimo that when Mandy was a little girl, she had a dog named Bruno. At high school, she had too many boyfriends and one bad boyfriend. Alexander said the men she had sex with at her house were not real boyfriends. She was using them to make money. She told Alexander if he ever took drugs, she would never speak to him again. Massimo was shocked at how much of her life Mandy had revealed to Alexander and the intimacy of their conversations. Massimo was perplexed. Prostitutes did not hold revealing conversations with their clients. They were all about business. Sure, some had favourites, but Massimo knew from experience that with hookers, it was all about the money. Massimo was shaking his head when he said to the nanny, My young mate and the hooker are closer than I thought. She tells him things, personal things. If they are that close, he is vulnerable. He could get hurt. He has no experience in these matters. The nanny replied, Perhaps not. Maybe she likes him and trusts him. Maybe he understands more than we give him credit for. And I will say this, although I do not approve of the way she earns her living, in the last few months, Alexander has become a far more confident and outgoing young man. The pilot announced the aircraft was about to descend and would arrive at the airport in 30 minutes. Jonathan expected the city to be vastly different. He had been away for 16 years. What had been a business trip to the United States to seek an equity partner to provide capital for expansion had led to a merger. Then a series of takeovers of smaller rivals, the plunge into Asia and the challenges of doing business there. 16 years later, he was a billionaire. He had sold the empire he had worked tirelessly to build and was now a powerless figurehead, a non-executive chairman with a corporate title but no power. The power rested with a young executive vice president, an ambitious CEO and a block of directors. Jonathan had more money than the combined assets of everyone at the boardroom table, yet could do nothing more than offer advice, advice most often ignored. Jonathan was a brilliant dealmaker, a masterful corporate strategist. He saw the world of international business as a great and wonderful game, a game at which he excelled. America was over. He had played and won. Jonathan needed a fresh challenge, something new to excite him. Russia, maybe. There were opportunities there. He had connections to some of Putin's people. They admired his relentless drive, his brilliant, strategic thinking, and the way he had beaten the elites of Wall Street at their own game. Now Jonathan was returning to the city where his business career began. There were things he needed to do, things that might lessen some of the guilt he felt at not seeing Carla one last time as she lay lifeless in the hospital. Guilt at not saying a last goodbye to the love of his life. He would visit her grave in the hope that would lessen some of the guilt. And he carried guilt about the boy, their boy, whose birth had cost Carla her life, something he could never forget, a boy now on the threshold of manhood. Jonathan knew it was absurd that after so many years, when he thought of the boy, he was still unable to stifle the resentment. Occasionally, he reflected on why he felt no love or connection to the damaged child, 
the child that could never be what he and Carla planned for. Now, no longer immersed in the work that served to block things out, he had forced himself to confront the guilt. He would see the boy, get to know him and take him home. He would find the best facility and care. It was time to face the fact he was the boy's father. He needed to accept that Carla, beautiful, perfect Carla, died giving birth to an imperfect child, a child whose existence he resented, a son he could never love. Massimo was smiling as he and Alexander left the office of the lawyer. When he and the nanny had told Alexander his father was coming to see him and wanted him to live in America, Alexander had shaken his head and raised his voice to say, Mandy is still sick, Massey, we have to help her. He paused, lowered his head and whispered, I don't want to go to America. Massimo hugged Alexander and said, No worries, partner, you don't have to go anywhere unless you want to, I promise you that. Massimo had carefully followed the lawyer's instructions. He had been to an accountant and set up a company with Alexander and himself as equal partners. He had taken his young friend to three psychologists. He had videos of Alexander using and maintaining machinery, measuring and preparing garden beds, laying lawns and constructing water features. Clients provided letters attesting to Alexander's gardening skills, politeness and ability to communicate and understand their requirements. Mrs Chambers, a client of several years, wrote that Alexander was a wonderful gardener and a polite young man with excellent morals and values. Massimo wrote a long letter saying his partner could work without supervision. He wrote that Alexander could read and write. He explained their business was thriving and enclosed copies of audited profit and loss statements. He wrote that Alexander did not drink alcohol, smoke or touch drugs. He wrote that Alexander had a driver's licence and had never received an infringement notice. The barrister, a senior counsel recommended by the lawyer, had seen the videos, read the file, examined the documents and was impressed. He said, you've got all bases covered. Alexander is without doubt capable of supporting himself and making his own decisions. If his father attempts to prove otherwise, he will lose. Mandy felt as though her face and chest were on fire. Her body was tightly bound and she was swathed in bandages. Each breath caused searing internal pain. A cannula was inserted into a vein in the back of one hand, a plaster cast encased the other arm. A catheter had been inserted through an incision in her side to drain blood and fluid from her abdominal cavity. Another tube was in place to drain urine into a plastic satchel. When she woke following the attack, Mandy feared she was blind. Fractured eye sockets and massive swelling meant she could only see movement and shapes that were close to her. But she was alive, smashed, bashed, broken and scarred, but alive. Mrs Wilkins had arranged for a limousine to be waiting at the airport. As a first-class passenger with VIP status, Jonathan was shepherded through customs and immigration with minimum fuss and inconvenience. At the hotel, he was given several messages. He was tired. The long journey had drained him. He showered and slept. When he woke, Jonathan rang his Houston office. He was told things were running smoothly and to enjoy his holiday. He took breakfast in his room, then rang Mrs Wilkins. She was the type of employee Jonathan valued, 
loyal, intelligent and dedicated. Although the bulk of his company's operations had moved to America, Jonathan had needed a small office in his home city to handle issues associated with the portfolio of real estate investments he and Carla had put together. The real estate had increased in size and value over the years and kept Mrs Wilkins busy. As well, there was Carla's grave, the boy, the nanny and the sale of the house. Mrs Wilkins had handled things wonderfully well. At 9.30am the following morning, a limousine arrived to take Jonathan to the cemetery. Mrs Wilkins had arranged for the driver to buy flowers. Using a map Mrs Wilkins had emailed him, Jonathan found Carla's grave. The grave was well tended, the headstone simple and appropriate. Jonathan disliked ostentation. Jonathan knelt by his wife's grave, placed the flowers against the headstone and whispered, My one and only love. I was young. Grief was something I had not experienced. I should have said goodbye. Forgive me, my darling. As he knelt, seeing Alexander's name on the headstone, below Carlos and his own, caused Jonathan a rush of resentment. This should be his and Carlos' monument. The boy never knew Carla. For a second, he reached down and placed his hand over Alexander's name. Following the resentment came the guilt. Jonathan knew little about the boy and knew it was ridiculous to blame him for Carla's death. He told himself the child had suffered too, born damaged, sentenced to a life of no ambition, deprived of the gift of intelligence, and because of that, access to the challenges and fulfilment of education and higher learning, the satisfaction of building a career, of knowing the feelings he and Carla had felt for each other. Jonathan had told himself a thousand times it was not the boy's fault. Yet, in truth, he resented his son because Alexander lived and Carla died. Although he could never love the child, he would take him to America and ensure the boy had a comfortable and safe existence. He owed that to Carla. Before the limousine reached Mrs Wilkins's office, Jonathan's phone buzzed. He answered the call and listened attentively occasionally giving responses of one or two words. When the call ended, he told the driver to take him to his hotel. He called Mrs Wilkins and instructed her to cancel his meeting with the lawyer, book a seat on the first available flight to London and reserve him a suite at the Dorchester. He gave her the email address of his Russian connections and instructed her to forward them his accommodation and flight details. The Russians wanted to talk. Dealing with them would be a challenge, but one Jonathan could not resist. It would be nearly a year before he returned to the city where it all began. Six weeks after being admitted to hospital, Mandy agreed to see two visitors. There was a large basket of fruit on her bedside cabinet and flowers, flowers everywhere. The cards that came with the flowers were placed in Mandy's bedside drawer by the hospital staff. When Mandy read the messages on the cards, she cried softly. The tears stung her eye. Not the damaged eye, she felt nothing in that eye. Mandy's first two visitors were the detectives assigned to her case. She told them as much as she could remember about the attack. They had questions. She answered slowly, without embellishment. Yes, she would cooperate. No, she did not know the man. Her clients were mainly regulars. No, she did not record their details. 
Mandy said that had she asked, they would have lied anyway. They paid in cash. Yes, her attacker booked by telephone. She had two other bookings that day. He was the second. The others were booked for late afternoon and early evening. Her early booking was her gardener. They spoke for 15 minutes, maybe a little longer. No, she and the gardener did not have sex. No, she did not taunt her attacker. No, she did not slap his face and threaten him with a piece of glass. No, she did not increase the price at the last minute. No, she did not threaten to tell his wife unless he paid her $5,000. How could she blackmail him? She did not know his name and had never seen him before. Yes, she had once killed a man, but you know that, she said. No, she did not break the mirror. He broke the mirror with a shoe. No, she repeated. She did not threaten him with a piece of glass. No, she did not touch the shoe. No, she did not have a pimp, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a partner or a male protector. No, she was not in touch with her family. No, she did not want them informed. No, she did not work the streets. No, she was not a drug user. Yes, she would testify in court. Yes, it was her house. Yes, she often spent two or three days in a five-star hotel. She did it when she needed a break, usually once or twice a month. Yes, she sometimes gambled at the casino, small amounts, no more than $50. No, she did not pick up wealthy high rollers at the casino. That evening, Alexander and Massimo visited Mandy. The stitches had been removed from the cuts on her face and her breasts. She was wearing a large bandage over her damaged eye. Mandy had been told that it was unlikely she would regain sight in that eye. She had several metal plates in her face and surgeons had told her that further reconstructive surgery would be needed. Her auburn hair had been shaved and her face was bruised and swollen. Massimo stood at her bedside, gently held her hand and whispered hoarsely, Oh my God. Alexander hesitated. He was shocked. Massimo had warned him that Mandy would not look the way she had when he last saw her. In a voice hoarse with pain, Mandy said, G'day boys, do I look much different? She forced a smile and Massimo, still holding her hand, laughed, wiped away a tear and said, Maybe a smidgen. Alexander had lived a life largely free of malevolence and violence. For the first time in his life, he felt something in his heart and mind that made him tremble. He felt anger, anger toward the man that did this to Mandy. Before that day, Alexander had never wanted to hurt anyone or anything, but he wanted to hurt the man that did this. Mandy reached out and held Alexander's hand. Then, holding both their hands, she tried to smile as she whispered hoarsely, OK, boys, how's the garden looking? Massimo smiled and said, it looks beautiful, and soon, so will you. In his gentle, careful way of speaking, Alexander said, Mandy, I brought you a friend. Before she could answer, Alexander left the room for a moment. He returned with a huge toy panda. A grin spread over his face when he saw Mandy smile. Alexander said, his name is Bruno, you know, like the dog you had when you were a little girl. Mandy gingerly reached for the panda and said, Come here, Bruno, meet your new mum. Mandy winced as she tried to smile and said, Fancy you were remembering that. 
Smiling, Massimo said proudly, My partner remembers everything. He's a lot smarter than some people think he is. The following week, with the assistance of a nurse, Mandy was able to walk a few metres. A week later, when Massimo and Alexander visited, with the two gardeners supporting her, Mandy walked from one end of the long corridor to the other. After one such visit, an Irish nurse asked Mandy, Are they family? Mandy smiled and said, Not really. They look after my garden. The Irish nurse laughed and said, That young fella can cut my grass any time. Mandy smiled but felt a moment of jealousy. Whenever Massimo and Alexander visited, the Irish nurse would find a reason to be there. She would make bawdy remarks about having to bathe the male patients and joke about the hospital food and the fact the best-looking doctors she worked with were gay. The Irish nurse wore a badge that said her name was Colleen. She and Mandy became friends. They had similar views about many things and shared a cheeky and raunchy sense of humour. Mandy asked Colleen if she knew her patient was a prostitute and the man who had bashed her to near death was a client. Colleen said, We all know the story, but don't you worry, no one here is judging you. Colleen asked if the two men who visited regularly were former clients. Mandy told her the story of how she met Massimo and Alexander. The Irish nurse said, He's different, that young fella. There's something about him. He's always calm, taking things in, and polite. He's so polite that sometimes I think it's an act. It took me a while to twig. That's the way he is. Mandy said, He could have had sex with me any time he visited. He paid for the time, but only wanted to drink coffee and eat a couple of biscuits or a piece of cake and listen to me talk about my family and the dog I had as a kid. He worships Massimo and adores the nanny who raised him. Massimo told me the mother died giving birth and the father lives in America. Apparently the old boy is filthy rich, but has not seen his son for more than 15 years. Colleen smiled as she said, That lovely drawl of his makes him sound like John Wayne. Mandy smiled. Funny thing you should say that. When I first met him, I called him cowboy. Colleen said, He's so sexy and masculine and nice. He is nice. They are both nice fellas. Mandy said, have you got a boyfriend? Colleen began to laugh. I've got a part-timer, a Brazilian. He's, wait for it, a barista. Nothing like your two visitors. He's all style and bullshit. But he is pretty and does make a good cup of coffee. Mandy said, is it serious? Colleen shook her head and said, I don't do serious. When Mandy was well enough to go home, Colleen arranged a booking for her at a motel close to the hospital. The motel provided easy access to outpatient facilities, rehabilitation programs and consultations with doctors. Mandy had some money in her bank account and a credit card. There was an ATM near the hospital. She had decided never to return to the plain red brick house, but she had two years' cash earnings hidden there. She needed to get the money and as soon as possible after the upcoming trial of her attacker, she would sell the house. Beyond that, she had no plans. Her once attractive appearance, that cheeky sexiness that had attracted men, was gone. Her face and body were scarred and she carried other scars too. She would never work as a prostitute again. She panicked at the thought of being alone in a room with a stranger. When he heard Mandy intended to live in a motel, Massimo would have none of it. 
He insisted that until she had another option, Mandy would live in the big five-bedroom house. There was plenty of room. She and the nanny could have the best rooms and use of the expansive bathroom with the old-fashioned bathtub. He and Alexander would take her to medical and rehab appointments. Besides, she would be company for nanny while they were working. Without hesitation, Mandy accepted, thanked Massimo and said, when the trial is over and I'm healed and mobile, I'll make other arrangements. I don't want to become your problem. Massimo smiled and said softly, my young mate and I would love having you there and so will nanny. My parents built a house for a big family. It was once a place full of life. I've treated it as a shrine. I want it to live again. He hesitated before saying, My mum used to say a house with empty rooms can be a very lonely place, and she was right. For a minute or two, there was silence. Massimo was embarrassed at opening a window to his thoughts. Mandy said quietly, You guys keep surprising me. When Kenneth Wayne Gribble applied for bail, his lawyer argued that his client owned the family home and other property, had a wife and two children, and strong business and familial links to the community. The lawyer said Mr Gribble intended to defend the charges and looked forward to a jury hearing his side of the story. Prosecutors vigorously opposed bail, emphasising the strength of their case and the seriousness of the charges, stating emphatically that should he be released on bail, they believed the defendant posed a danger to women in the community. The magistrate had read details of the charges. He looked at Kenneth Wayne Gribble, paused for a moment, then said, bail is denied. Catherine Gribble was convinced the whole thing was a terrible mistake. Her husband had told her a gang of criminals had set him up and tried to blackmail him. That woman, the prostitute, was their leader. She had suffered the injuries when her husband fought for his freedom. Catherine Gribble believed her husband was incapable of this horrible crime. He volunteered in service organisations. He was a good provider, a hard worker, a religious man who loved his children. And Kenneth was not a sexual person. Intimate happenings in their marriage were infrequent and always initiated by her. Catherine and her friends were convinced the truth would be revealed at the trial and her husband would be exonerated. To those that knew him, the suggestion Ken Gribble, the prudish undertaker, the perfect family man, a stalwart of the community, an acolyte of the church, would pay some common prostitute for sex, then inflict life-threatening injuries on her, was simply ridiculous. There had to be more to the story. Mason Croft SC leaned back in the comfortable old chair that had been his late father's. He swivelled around to take in the view from his 15th floor office, the best address in the CBD. Croft SC was troubled. He had read the Gribble file for the third time. In the world of criminal law, Mason Croft had earned the reputation of being a winner. Few of his contemporaries had his combination of skills. His commanding courtroom presence, his rich baritone voice, his incisive wit his ability to hold the attention of a jury and his encyclopaedic knowledge of the law. Many times during his career, Mason Croft had won seemingly unwinnable cases. He had a well-deserved reputation for finding a tiny flaw in a prosecution's case, 
often using a fragment of dubious evidence and his commanding courtroom skills to raise doubt in the minds of jurors. Croft SC was proud of his winning record in high-profile cases and his fees reflected the demand for his services. But try as he may, after examining the Gribble file, Mason Croft was unable to find a plausible argument or point of law on which to base a defence. Cell phone records showed Kenneth Wayne Gribble to be a regular user of the sexual services advertised in the personal columns of some newspapers. That led detectives to other prostitutes he had threatened. One woman, in the country illegally, had been beaten and sexually assaulted by Kenneth Gribble after refusing some of his sexual demands. Fearing deportation, the victim had not reported the attack at the time. When other prostitutes provided information to police, detectives located the woman and obtained a statement. She unhesitatingly identified her attacker as Kenneth Wayne Gribble. The police believed there were others who had been violently assaulted. Croft SC had seen images on a laptop computer police had found in a locked drawer in the office of his client. The images, hundreds of them, showed women being sexually brutalised. Then there were the photographs of the injuries inflicted on the victim, photographs the jury would see. They were horrifying. He knew the prostitute had served a prison term for killing a violent and abusive pimp, but he could not reveal that to a jury. His client had beaten the prostitute unconscious. He had bound and sodomised her. His client's semen was found in her anus and the bite marks on her body matched the defendant's dental records. His client had told detectives the victim had used one of his shoes to smash the mirror and used the broken glass to attack him, yet neither her DNA nor her fingerprints were on either shoe. Croft SC liked the big cases, the headline grabbers. This one had the lot, sex and violence involving a prostitute and a respected married man, an undertaker no less, and a man thought by his family and friends to be the essence of virtue. His client told police he had beaten the victim because she attacked him. He said she tried to blackmail him, taunted him and tried to rob him. At first his client told police there had been other people in the house who had attacked him, accomplices of the victim. When asked how he had beaten them off and why he showed no evidence of being attacked by a group of robbers and blackmailers or the victim, Kenneth Wayne Gribble could offer no plausible explanation and changed his story. When asked why, once he had thwarted the robbery attempt and fought off the prostitute, did he tie her hands and feet, anally rape her, cover her buttocks and inner thighs with deep bites and slash her breasts with pieces of the shattered mirror? Kenneth Gribble did not reply and began to blubber incoherently. Asked why did he not unlock the door for the police, Kenneth Gribble refused to answer questions. Mason Croft was unable to find anything in the evidence on which to mount a plausible defence. The case against his client was overwhelming. If the case went to trial, the salacious details would create headlines. Inevitably, his client would be found guilty. The eminent barrister picked up the phone. He needed to have a word with the prosecutor and then with Mr Gribble. The day the trial was due to commence, Mason Croft had another long conversation with his client. Mandy dressed in dark clothing for the trial, 
black suit, dark blue blouse, large dark sunglasses. A dark blue scarf covered her head and face. She needed medication to numb the pain in her face, abdomen and ribs. Colleen said she would be at the court and was true to her word. Massimo and Alexander assured Mandy they would not leave her side. At the Justice Centre, Mandy was leaning heavily on Alexander and Massimo as they pushed past waiting media. A large group of family and friends were there to support Kenneth Gribble. Mandy, her head bowed, felt nauseous and in extreme pain. Colleen put her arm around Mandy's shoulders and in a loud and angry voice said, I am this poor woman's nurse. Can you not see she is in terrible pain? Get out of the way. A member of the prosecution team and the two detectives who had investigated the case were waiting inside the court building. Mandy said she needed to sit down. The prosecutor told her that some of the charges against Gribble had been dropped. Of those remaining, he would be changing his plea to guilty. There would be no trial. When the defendant appeared in court, the judge had been informed that of the charges Mr Gribble was facing, all but three had been dropped. In relation to those, Kenneth Wayne Gribble would plead guilty. Among the charges dropped was the accusation of attempted murder. The judge remanded the defendant in custody pending a sentencing hearing. A senior reporter, there to cover what was expected to be a trial that had promised to generate scandalous headlines, rang his chief of staff and said, mate, the hooker and the undertaker thing, no trial. Gribble has coughed to three charges. They've dropped attempted murder and some of the others. I'll come back to the office. The day Kenneth Gribble was to be sentenced, Alexander and Massimo again accompanied Mandy to the court. Three reporters, a photographer and one TV crew were chatting on the street outside the Justice Centre. Colleen was waiting. Mandy, being supported by Massimo and Alexander, walked slowly. She was in pain. She was again wearing the black suit, dark blue blouse and large dark sunglasses. The dark blue silk scarf covered her head and most of her face. Outside the court, two camera operators and a photographer closed in on her. A couple of young reporters asked questions. Mandy kept her head bowed and said nothing. Colleen took Mandy's hand. Alexander and Massimo stayed close and provided support when needed. They passed through security and sat in the front row of the courtroom. Massimo on one side of Mandy, Alexander and Colleen on the other. Mandy was trembling. Massimo held her hand and moved close. Alexander put a reassuring arm around her shoulders. Kenneth Gribble's family and supporters arrived outside the court and Mrs Gribble, when answering questions from reporters, repeated several times, My husband is a good man, a loving family man, a church-going man. I'm sure the judge knows that. A big red-faced man said loudly, The woman accusing Ken is a harlot, a prostitute who entrapped a good man. Mason Croft eloquently and passionately told the court of the high esteem in which his client was held. He spoke about the work Kenneth Gribble had done in raising funds for local sporting clubs and his client's sponsorship of an important community award. He drew the judge's attention to the many character references and letters of support that prominent members of the community had provided, attesting to the high regard in which this much-admired church-going family man was held. 
The judge had read through the references and the list of worthy contributions Kenneth Gribble had made to the community in which he lived and conducted business. He had also read reports from psychiatrists and psychologists who had examined the accused. The reports were troubling, as was other information. The much-admired family man in the dock was not a first-time offender. Kenneth Gribble had form. As an 18-year-old, Gribble had threatened and molested a 12-year-old girl. Five years later, in another city, Gribble was given a suspended sentence for a similar offence. Only an impassioned plea from his ailing widowed mother saved him from a term of imprisonment. And some years before Kenneth and Catherine Gribble met and married, there was the violence restraining order taken out by a former girlfriend. The girl had said in a signed statement she feared Gribble and that he had attempted to involve her in sexual violence and perversion. Mandy removed her sunglasses and scarf and looked directly at the sentencing judge. The judge said, Please stand, Mr Gribble. He paused, looked down at the file sitting on the desk in front of him, removed his spectacles and said, Mr Gribble, I have given consideration to your plea of guilty, which, to your credit, avoids subjecting the victim of your actions to the stress of a trial. I have also read and considered the letters and references from members of your community. The judge paused again before continuing. After a few seconds of silence, he said, I have also read and carefully considered the police reports, medical details and other evidence associated with this case. The judge again paused before saying, Kenneth Wayne Gribble, in a violent and depraved attack, you inflicted life-threatening injuries on your victim, the scars of which, both physical, psychological and emotional, she will carry for life. The judge leaned forward, looked at Mandy, then directly at Kenneth Gribble, and said, compounding the seriousness of the violent attack you inflicted on your victim was the sexual depravity to which you subjected her. The evidence before me compels me to believe you are a violent and dangerous sexual predator. I consider the offences to which you have entered pleas of guilty to be at the higher end of seriousness for those offences. The community needs to know and indeed demands that whatever the circumstances and background of the victim, the courts will impose harsh penalties for crimes involving violent sexual attacks against women. Asked if he had anything to say, Kenneth Gribble in a trembling voice mumbled, it was her, she led me on. Then after slurring a few inaudible words, he fell silent, head bowed. The judge then imposed a sentence of 13 years imprisonment with a non-parole period of 10 years. As Kenneth Wayne Gribble, head still bowed, was taken away, Catherine Gribble cried out, Oh my God, no, no, this is wrong. For a few minutes, Mandy did not move. Massimo looked toward the dock and whispered, Bene, molto bene. Mandy turned slowly and looked at Catherine Gribble. The undertaker's wife, sobbing uncontrollably, was in the arms of her supporters. With Massimo leading the way and Alexander and Colleen supporting her, Mandy walked slowly toward the door of the court. Muttering insults, two of Catherine Gribble's supporters moved toward her. Massimo blocked their way. A stocky, bald man, red-faced and angry, pointed a finger at Mandy. The words on the brass badge in the lapel of his black suit said, Gribble's funerals, worthy of your trust. The man said loudly, That harlot has ruined the life of a good man. 
A woman hissed, slut, devil slut, you will be punished. Mandy gently released herself from the arms of Alexander and Massimo and stood in front of Catherine Gribble and her supporters and removed her sunglasses and headscarf. When the Gribble supporters saw her scarred and misshapen face and her opaque blind eye, some stepped back, others looked away. Mandy looked at the woman who had called her the devil's slut, then at Catherine Gribble. The undertaker's wife sobbed. He wouldn't do that. Mandy said quietly, but he did do it, and he did a lot worse. You were sharing your life and your bed with the monster. The judge has done you a favour. Colleen was angry. She shouted in the faces of Catherine Gribble's supporters, See what the bastard did? Have a good look. I hope he rots in jail for what he did to this woman. She was ready to say more, but Alexander put his arms around Colleen and Mandy and led them away. When they reached the courtroom door, another man, a big man from the Gribble group, stood in front of Mandy and Colleen. As he did so, he pointed a finger at Mandy and Colleen and called them evil bitches. Massimo had been leading the way and was outside the courtroom when the man shouted more insults and pushed a defiant and angry Colleen. In an instant, Alexander grabbed the man by the collar and pushed him away. With fists clenched, Alexander stood between Mandy and Colleen and the Gribble supporters and said, leave my family alone, get away from us. Alexander stepped forward and in a louder voice repeated, get away from us. The Gribble supporters moved away. Two security guards arrived and firmly moved people toward the main doors. Still mumbling insults, the Gribble supporters joined the group of sympathisers consoling Catherine Gribble. With Alexander and Massimo protecting Mandy and Colleen, the four walked slowly through the foyer and into the street. Most of the waiting media were congregated around Catherine Gribble and had not seen the confrontation in the foyer. As Mandy and her friends walked away, several reporters asked a couple of half-hearted questions. Mandy said nothing. A reporter blurted a question at Massimo. Are you her boyfriend? Massimo answered loudly, I'm her gardener and her friend. Someone shouted, are you her pimp? Massimo ignored the provocation. When Mandy and her three supporters reached the entrance to the car park, the news hunters had hurried back to the court to get pictures and quotes from the police and prosecutors and more pictures of a sobbing and distraught Catherine Gribble. Mandy, sick and in pain, started to tremble and was unable to stand. Massimo gently put his arms around her, lifted her and carried her to their car. Colleen said anxiously, let's get her home. If his former colleagues thought Jonathan was going to disappear into retirement, they were mistaken. He was back in the game. The Russian deal excited him. He had advised Houston of his resignation as non-executive chairman of the company he had founded and built. Jonathan established an office in London. It was easier to commute to Moscow from there. The deal had problems. There were regional and international issues to be sorted. By stepping in and taking over, Jonathan had upset some powerful people, but he knew his way around the world of global business and geopolitics, and being a billionaire opened a lot of doors. Besides, several of his Russian associates had the backing of key decision makers in the Kremlin. When Jonathan presented his business model for the new venture and showed the Russians spreadsheets, columns of figures and anticipated profits, 
he felt years younger. He was doing what he loved, something at which he excelled. He was showing people how to turn an idea into a grand and exciting concept and how to take that concept and pull the strands together to create something real, something to enrich the nations involved and earn an incredible amount of money for those who made it happen. And Jonathan would make it happen. Of that, he was certain. On board the aircraft, Jonathan settled into the best seat in first class. He had much work to do on the flight. He had printed out a pile of incoming emails and his time in the air enabled him to read each message carefully and write comprehensive notes on what action to take. His business associates in Houston were reaching out. They wanted a meeting. They had heard about the Russian deal. They were shocked and surprised and asked Jonathan if he would clarify the situation. Their interest pleased Jonathan. Once they had learned the deal was a goer, they wanted in. Jonathan smiled. They would pay a high price to be part of this project. He liked the thought of them scurrying around trying to discover what he was up to. Did they really believe they could take over his business empire, remove him from power, pay him off and turn him out to pasture? Jonathan had decided that before the demands of the project completely engulfed him, he would stay a few days in his home city, probably for the last time. There were loose ends to be tidied up. Mrs Wilkins had advised Jonathan that she was retiring. In his absence, she had been managing real estate assets now worth more than $200 million. He would talk to the right people and either sell the holdings or appoint reputable managers but his inclination was to sell. And there was the boy. He would need to resolve that matter. Mrs Wilkins had told Jonathan she was astonished and deeply concerned to learn Alexander and the nanny had recently moved out of the family house and were living somewhere in the semi-rural suburbs. She had engaged an inquiry agent to prepare a report for Jonathan on their whereabouts and circumstances. She had since been informed the boy was in good health and in no danger. He was employed as a gardener. Mrs Wilkins said she was confident the nanny would not let anything bad happen to the boy. Mrs Wilkins said the boy and the nanny were close, which Mrs Wilkins said was understandable. The day Kenneth Wayne Gribble was sentenced, Colleen, the Irish nurse, stayed for dinner with Massimo, Alexander, the nanny and Mandy in the big five-bedroom house. Before the food was served, everyone gathered in the spacious lounge room and sank into the big old-fashioned chairs to watch the television news. The biggest story of the day was a lengthy report about an affair between a reality TV star and a government minister, followed by a report about the sacking of a football coach, the death of a well-known businessman and his wife in a three-car crash on a country road was the third story. Before the first ad break, there was 30 seconds of coverage of the sentencing of Kenneth Wayne Gribble for his attack on a sex worker. The newsreader said Gribble received a sentence of 14 years for what the judge described as a depraved and vicious attack. Gribble must serve a minimum of 11 years before being eligible for parole. There were a few seconds of footage of the offender's shocked and devastated wife being supported by family members as she left the court. And another few seconds showing the victim, described as a sex worker who suffered extensive life-changing injuries after being attacked by Gribble. 
For a minute or two following the report, there was silence before Massimo raised his hands and said, that's it, the bastard is in jail. There was little talk as they sat around the big jarret table in the kitchen. Massimo had cooked pasta and veal cutlets and opened a bottle of wine. Nanny prepared a salad. They ate in silence before Colleen filled her glass, raised it and said, here's a toast to strong women and survival. Mandy tried to smile, raised her glass and said, I'll drink to that. She sipped her wine, wiped a tear and said, and a toast to my gardeners and my nurse, my friends and protectors, I can never thank you enough. Later, they ate cheese and crusty bread and olives and drank more wine. And Massimo brought liqueur glasses from the big kitchen cupboard near the pantry and filled them with limoncello. They talked and there were more tears. Mandy had been drinking more than the others. She suddenly stood and said loudly, You people are so special, I fucking love you. Sobbing softly, she paused, swaying, then said, I'm a hooker, a hard bitch prostitute. I don't deserve you. Mandy was still standing and unsteady when she said, I killed a man for bashing me, for using me. I went to jail for killing a drug-addicted heap of shit. Nanny, wide-eyed, put her hand over her mouth and said, Oh, my goodness. Through her tears, Mandy said, I've met a lot of bad men, but you two guys, I can't believe you two guys. Unable to find the right words, she sat and began to cry. Sobbing, Mandy said, And Colleen, I've never had a friend like you. I love you, you know that, I love you. The nanny and Massimo wiped tears from their eyes. Colleen placed a comforting arm around Mandy's shoulders and Alexander said gently, We won't let anyone hurt you again, Mandy. Massimo wiped his eyes, regained his composure, poured more limoncello and in mock seriousness said, That guy you killed? I hope he wasn't your gardener. They all laughed. Colleen kissed Alexander on the cheek and placed her hand on his knee. In the early hours of the morning, Colleen entered the room where Alexander was sleeping. She unbuttoned the large shirt he had given her and dropped it to the floor. Naked, she lifted the bed cover and laid beside the young gardener. Startled, he woke. Colleen put her hand over his mouth, then slowly withdrew it and gently kissed him. Then she kissed him again and pressed her breasts against his chest and felt him become aroused. His hands, the rough hands of a man who worked the earth, gently explored her body. Colleen caressed him and kissed his neck and shoulders. Alexander moaned softly and drew her close. Two days later, the morning newspaper ran a headline, Bashed Hooker, a Killer. The accompanying story featured quotes from the family of the drug-addicted boyfriend Mandy fought and killed in self-defence. The family told the reporter... Mandy was a dangerous sex worker who hated men. Kenneth Gribble's family and supporters flooded talkback radio, casting doubt on the police investigation and Mandy's version of events. Some talkback radio hosts called for the Attorney-General to launch an inquiry, with one alleging Kenneth Gribble was entrapped and victimised by a predatory sex worker. A politician appeared on television demanding a review of Gribble's sentence. Armed with a folder of leaked information, a feminist writer for a left-of-centre publication wrote a scathing rebuttal to the criticisms. The lengthy article carried details of the horrendous injuries Mandy, then a teenager, suffered at the hands of the drug-addicted violent criminal 
she killed in self-defence. An older man who would likely have killed her had she not fought for her life. The article detailed the dead boyfriend's history of drug fueled violence. The leaked documents on which the article was based included details of Kenneth Gribble's convictions for previous sex offences. The article and a follow-up television story silenced the critics. Media focus was directed elsewhere. The so-called Justice for Ken crusade died without a whimper. Colleen thought it was a one-night stand. She was wrong. She stayed another night, then for a week. A month later, she moved in. Colleen, the Irish nurse, the girl who played the field, the girl who, if she saw a man she liked, went after him, the girl who liked to party, the girl who was only in the country on a working holiday, the girl who did not believe in love, the girl who left home for six months intending to see the world, had never met a man like Alexander. She told her friends at the hospital her new boyfriend was a keeper, and when they asked why, Colleen replied, because he's real. I've never met anyone like him. What he says is what he means. When I'm with him, I feel safe and special. He has a beautiful heart. He is real, a real man. Her friends laughed and one said loudly, Oh my God, the Irish man-eater is in love. When Alexander, in his most serious tone, told Massimo that Colleen was his girlfriend, Massimo said, She's your first girlfriend, partner. There will be others. Enjoy what you two have, but remember sometimes these things don't last. Then he patted Alexander's shoulder and said, OK, partner? Alexander smiled. He loved Massey, and Massey was the smartest person Alexander knew. But Massimo did not know what Colleen had said when she was in his arms the night before. Alexander knew there would be no other girlfriends. The lawyer looked across his desk at the handsome, upright, grey-haired, impeccably dressed man sitting opposite and wondered why, after so many years, Jonathan had not married again. He knew Jonathan well enough not to ask. Jonathan did not raise his voice, but he was angry. The lawyer had told him Alexander would not be going to America or London. His son had a business, was in a relationship, was earning a living and according to the best psychologists in the city, was capable of making his own decisions and living a normal life. Jonathan said, but the boy is retarded. The lawyer pushed a manila folder toward him and said, read that. Your son has some limitations as the result of a difficult birth, but since early childhood, he has made impressive improvement. He is leading a busy, normal life. Jonathan said, that's all the more reason for him to live close to me. I can guide him and teach him. The lawyer looked Jonathan in the eyes and said quietly, When did you last see your son? Jonathan did not answer. As gently as he could, the lawyer said, Jonathan, I've met the boy. I told him you were reaching out, that you wanted him to live in London to be closer to you. The lawyer waited a moment before continuing. He doesn't know you, Jonathan. The lawyer paused, then said, This is not about ownership rights. This is about a person's life. You have no hold over him. You are not real to him. My best advice to you would be to contact the boy and take time to get to know him. Jonathan sat silently, looking at the manila folder. He thought of reaching for it. Instead, he handed the lawyer a card and said, Send everything to my London office. 
I will make some decisions after I've read the file. Mandy was sitting alone on the porch at the rear of the house. She liked the hour before dawn, the coolness, the chirping of native birds flitting in the shrubbery, the cackle of one of the old hens telling the world she had produced an egg. Mandy sipped her coffee and thought how close she had come to death, how her life had changed, how she had changed. In hospital, reflecting on her life, Mandy felt a terrible guilt for breaching the trust her widowed father had placed in her. He had trusted her to choose her friends carefully. He had trusted her to make the right decisions. He had trusted her to be the best she could be. Yet she discarded his love and his trust. She asked herself if it was all her fault. What about the men? Starting with the tough guy and the teenage silliness, she convinced herself was love. Was it her fault she was duped and used? Was it her fault she had to kill the tough guy to be free of him, to stop him bashing her and using her? Was it her fault that when she was released from jail, ashamed and penniless, she could not face her father, could not go home and fled to another city? Or were those things no one's fault? Were they part of her life story? Chapters written that cannot be unwritten. Lessons... Painful, searing, scarring lessons. There were other lessons, those taught by two strangers. The men who had taken her in, who for no reason other than human kindness, had supported her, sheltered her, and allowed her to become part of their lives. A lesson in human kindness. A balance. Massimo and Alexander parked the ute outside the tired-looking red brick house with the faded green tiles, and lush, well-tended garden. Mandy had told Massimo where to find the money she had hidden in the house. Using the keys Mandy had given him, Massimo unlocked the security doors. She had written the security codes on a slip of paper and told him where to find the keypad. He checked. The system was switched off. He went to the first bedroom on the left of the short passageway that led to the main bedroom where Mandy had been attacked. For a moment, Massimo thought about looking into the room where Mandy had fought for her life, but quickly decided against it. Massimo went to the window of the other bedroom, parted the heavy curtains, lifted one end of the wooden windowsill, reached into the cavity between the outer and inner walls of the house and retrieved a linen bag containing some documents. He reached further and recovered six neat bundles of $50 notes wrapped in aluminium foil. That evening, when Massimo handed Mandy the bag containing the bundles of notes and documents he had retrieved from her house, she gave him an envelope and said, I was keeping this for you. It's the money you gave Alexander for the visits. I don't know if he told you, but we drank a lot of coffee, ate some cake and talked a lot. But that's all. No sex. It was his idea. I told him it was our secret. Massimo shook his head and smiled. Can you believe it? He never told me. He never said a word. He handed the envelope back to Mandy and with a wave of his hand said, Give the money to Nanny. She will need things for the house. Mandy said wryly, I cannot believe I found a man who can keep a secret. Massimo laughed and said, He seems to have got the gist of things without our help. Smiling, Mandy said, I'll make some coffee. They sat side by side on the old cane chairs with the faded cushions. The chairs that decades before... Massimo's mother had bought and placed on the veranda at the rear of the house. They sipped their coffee in silence, 
watching Alexander tending the tomato plants in the vegetable garden. The nanny joined them and said, I found a book in the cupboard. It seems to be full of handwritten recipes. Everything is in Italian. You'll have to translate for me, Massimo. Massimo said quietly, Those are my mother's notes. She loved cooking. Tomorrow you and I will cook one of my mama's special meals. Colleen, coffee in hand, joined them. She was still wearing her nurse's uniform. She flopped into a chair, kicked off her shoes, sighed and said, Home at last. It's been a hell of a day. As soon as Alexander saw Colleen, he removed his gardening gloves, washed his hands and smiling broadly sat beside Colleen and put his arm around her. She kissed his cheek and said, How's my darling boy? Alexander said, I'm good, but the tomato plants need some calcium. Colleen laughed loudly and said, Those are not exactly the words every attention-seeking girlfriend longs to hear. She kissed Alexander on the cheek again and said, That's why I love you, baby. You haven't got a single speck of bullshit in you. Then she winked, sipped her coffee and said, Of course you do have a couple of other very attractive qualities. Everyone laughed. Massimo saw tears trickling through the scars on Mandy's face. He squeezed her hand and whispered softly, Massimo si prendere cura di te. Mandy looked into the big, round, friendly, suntanned face of the man who had become her friend, whose unwavering support had sustained her and helped her mind and body heal. There was none of the lust in his eyes that Mandy had so often seen in the eyes of other men. In his eyes, she saw only concern and compassion. She squeezed the gardener's strong, calloused hand and whispered, Say it in English. The brawny gardener replied, Massimo will look after you. Mandy wiped away her tears and said, Tell you what, Paisano, why don't we look after each other? They sat side by side in silence until Mandy whispered, I want you to meet my father. The Russian deal made Jonathan a lot of money. He became a powerful and influential figure in European and Russian business circles. He never contacted Alexander and did not read the file the lawyer sent to his London office. Jonathan died not knowing he had a beautiful granddaughter named Carla.